the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 970 The Answer presents Eye on Real Estate. This is your premier source for real estate information from the hot properties in the tri-state to the latest real estate market trends. From mortgage news to answers to all your real estate questions, you'll be in the know with help from the experts. I'm getting closer to my Call now. 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Now, here's your host for Eye on Real Estate, Douglas Elliman's CEO, Dottie Herman. Hey, it's Stephen Gaines sitting in for Dottie Herman, and uh, Dottie's co-host is here, though, Jerry Feeney. Good morning, Jerry. And Good morning, so is. I thought we lost you for a second. And uh, Glenda Winter Irving is also here, our mortgage and finance expert and our all-around real estate expert, educator, and uh, real estate investor. Esther Muller is here with us as well. And so joining us is uh, Michael Rodriguez. Michael Rodriguez is the Director of Research. Don't get scared at this title. The Director of Research at the Center for Real Estate and Urban Analysis at George Washington University. And he is the co-author of The Walk-Up Wake-up call, New York. Good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning, everyone. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, greetings from Washington, where I am. Washington, D.C.? Yes. Yes, so that, I guess, is the side of the battleground, right? <laughs> uh, yes, it's part of it, and it's, it brings some great contrast, because we've now studied New York, and we've studied D.C., Atlanta, and Boston, and a couple other places around the country. So we see some interesting but parallel findings that I'm happy to talk about. Oh, I'd be fascinated to know that. First, let's let's uh, explain to our uh, our listeners exactly uh, what what you're studying here. Is it is it walkability? Is that fair to say, Michael? Uh, yeah, walkability. It's where are the places in your region where you can actually walk to things. And it sounds kind of simple conceptually, but it actually is a little difficult to to go in and find these places. It requires a little detective work sometimes, and we use a lot of data analytics to to find them, and we go ahead, we find them, we map them, and then we, we look at some of the trends in terms of real estate and, and what, we, uh, what we see. But, Michael, why would you have to find them? Isn't everywhere walkable? Uh, that's an interesting one, and one of the most surprising findings we find out of the New York report uh, in particular. Now, your metropolitan region, it extends as far south as almost half of the state of New Jersey, extends as far north as Poughkeepsie. It's the broad metro area. When we look at that metro area, over 80% of the walkability is actually just in the five boroughs. There's very little outside of the five boroughs. And then even within the five boroughs, most of that is in Manhattan. So it's actually a bit of a tale of two cities. We got a very walkable urban core, some of the best walkability in the United States. People think of New York, they think of a walkable urban place, a place you're going to walk around where you're in Times Square, you're, down, you're downtown in the village or somewhere. Um, that's what a lot of people's idea is. But we actually don't find that everywhere else in the region, so, and so, it's a little harder. 
so uh, but actually so walkability means the ability to just walk from place to place i mean it, it define what you can walk around poughkeepsie i'm sure also but you, what there are there are miles and miles between houses and stores is that what it's about yeah it's about how many destinations are there from a point that you're at so what can you walk to how much stuff can you walk to and is the infrastructure supportive of you being able to walk there and then some other things like is there transit accessibility and such so we take a lot of pieces of data and we rely heavily on a data piece called walk score i'm not sure if everyone's familiar with that but that's a um it's a website out there walk score and there's actually a measure from zero to 100 of how walkable your area is we use that as one piece of information among others and we can map really the world in terms of how it's uh, how much walkability we see in the region and the more walkable you are the more things you can get to the easier it is to get to a job the easier it is to go to pick up your kids from daycare the easier it is for you to actually just be able to do your daily life without having to get into a car so this says, I think it's from your report, uh, a pedestrian who walks a half a mile almost anywhere in Manhattan will pass a tremendous variety of shops, restaurants, transit options, right? So is, that's why Manhattan is, of course, it's this tiny little space, and that's why it is so walkable. Just 2.4% of the land in the New York metro region is, is walkable, though. One would think it was much more than 2.4%. Uh, yeah, well, it's a big landmass, the New York metropolitan area uh, region. It's a landmass almost the size of the state of Maryland, and a very, very little slither. Of that, less than one-half of a percent is actually the most premium walkability. We call these our walk-ups. Regionally significant, that means they're major job destinations, uh, have a lot of office and retail activity, and walkable. The other Can you name two, some places in New York? Yeah, By the way, I mean, do the other two, and then, yes. Yeah, let me just tell you, uh, obviously, downtown Manhattan, uh, actually, almost the entire island of Manhattan is your primary walk-up. But just thinking about outside of there, maybe we look at Long Island City, we look at uh, places like um, downtown Jersey City and other places throughout the region, downtown White Plains. These are some, they're major job concentration, but there's, when you're there in the little areas, and some people are going to question, well, I never heard that White Plains was walkable. But if you're actually in the downtown area of, uh, of White Plains, compared to a lot of the other drivable suburbs, there actually is quite a bit of walkability destinations that one can get to without having to use a car. Hmm. It says 24.0% is small but mighty. Yeah. It is home to 42% of the population, 31% of regional real estate square footage, 53% of the region's $6 trillion real estate market value, and 56% yep. of the gross regional. So that's incredible. $6 trillion in real estate market value is where it's walkable. And is that because it's walkable? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, well the $6 trillion is – we were some of the first people to try and find this number. How much is all the land underneath your feet worth when you add it all up? And in that metro area, it's about $6 trillion. Um, that turns out to be about a, you could buy about a third of the United States um, shares. You could buy a third of the shares in the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange with that $6 trillion if you wanted to trade it up as a region. Uh, that's about as much as it's worth. And the majority of that's going to be in walkability. And, and it does drive the economy. It drives your, uh, your GDP or your local gross regional product. And it also drives your real estate prices. And we're talking premiums here that we see, especially in the commercial real estate market. Uh, we see a, pr a difference of about 
uh, 50 to 150 percent, depending on, on where we are in terms of what that walkable premium is on the valuation of, of the asset. So explain to me what drivable suburban is. What does that mean? Uh, so drivable suburban is really your typical experience out in American uh, regions. Uh, so when you're out in, uh, frankly, most of Long Island is that. Most of New Jersey is that. Most of the region is that. It's places where you just need a car to be able to go to the bathroom, as we say. You need to get in the car just to go to your next thing. That is very difficult, sometimes even impossible or even illegal to walk. Um, you could see the thing across the street, but there's, a, the, the, there's eight lanes of traffic between you and, and the place you want to get to. And that's very, it's very dangerous for pedestrians, and it actually, some, in some cases, it's actually illegal to walk. You know, there, we, we, did a, uh, we did a thing a while ago on this show about uh, cul-de-sacs and how if your neighbor, if you lived in a cul-de-sac, if your neighbor in the backyard, that it might take you 15 minutes to actually get to your neighbor because to drive there because you couldn't just hop over the land in the back. You'd have to get in your car, drive all the way around to their street, and, and it was the only way to get around in cul-de-sacs and how cul-de-sacs were actually killing the walkability and, and the neighborhood feeling. Um, did you find that's true, Michael? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the drivable suburbs are defined by these cul-de-sacs, by these winding roads, and major arterials just cutting up the neighborhood, and a lack of ability to access places by walking. The design of retail and office, we have these dying office parks, and they are dying. Uh, real estate developers are telling us that we were just had a big visit with some Australian real estate developers and a lot of the major projects in our region. They're telling us that if they're trying to find financing for an office park, you almost get laughed out of the room by capital about trying to actually finance some of these products that what you need to be doing is these walkable urban developments. And this is especially on that real estate, uh, on the resident, excuse me, on the commercial uh, retail and office side of things. So that's really what we're trying to find. So this idea of these cul-de-sacs, of these strip malls and these office parks they're not succeeding in the economy today. The market has fundamentally shifted. This is what we find in every market we, we had. We find this nationally. The, the market has shifted where both the commercial market, the residential market, and users, the actual people, everyday people, they're demanding this type of product, both for their um, commercial experiences, for going shopping, and for your residential products as well. So it says in some of, the, some of the figures that you have, investment values of walkable versus drivable suburban. Uh, so if you can walk to your office, if, if you're in an area where you have an office building where people can walk to it, the value is, this is pretty amazing to me, 359% more than it would be if it was in a suburban industrial park. Retail is 162% more. And a th uh, the hotel is 384% more. So, and rental yeah. apartment, 236% more value if you're somewhere walkable. It, yeah, and, and it seems like you almost intuitively might know that, but maybe not, because there had been so much development in the 80s and 90s, especially going out into these suburban office malls. Let's talk about office as a, as a, as a product, as a commercial product. These office, uh, office parks out in the middle of the suburbs, they're no longer, some of them are no longer even viable. 
uh, Marriott here in Washington, D.C. is moving from their suburban office park trying to get to a, to a metro station. That's what we're finding, and that's where we find these staggering premiums. You just mentioned somewhere upwards to 300%, 200%. On broad, on the average, we see oh, well over 100, 150% premium on a, per first, uh, on a per square foot basis for all these products. So part of the magic of... Go ahead, Jerry. What about something that's as basic as not installing sidewalks in suburban communities? I mean, the suburban community that I grew up in had no sidewalks. Uh, The developer didn't put them in, and it really, you know, obviously wasn't conducive to walking. I mean, is that changing now? Are you you seeing a a trend in that? would not mention the report, but yes, it is something that we see the communities trying to pine for, especially as we see this little bit of a shift of as millennials are especially getting a little older, moving into suburbs and establishing families a little more, moving into areas that aren't the urban core. That's not to say the suburbs, but they're bringing a different set of preferences. And they're saying, hey, why can't I have these urban amenities? Why can't I have sidewalks? Why can't I get to a place that I want to go to here in this community? So we had a, when we released this report, my colleague Tracy Lowe, she was on uh, WNYC on uh, talking about Bloomfield, New Jersey. And Bloomfield, New Jersey is an example where the, the program had said, well, can't afford Brooklyn? Try Bloomfield, because here's a place that's trying to develop around its train station that they have. And this is an important point. These sidewalks and transit assets the infrastructure there is really what makes the walkability. So you have a transit asset like like the New Jersey Railroad, Long Island Railroad, talking about the third rail even, or excuse me, the, the, the third track. I heard the third rail is the third rail out there. Um, so we have these transit assets like Bloomfield. Bloomfield's trying to develop around this. We have transit-oriented development. Those types of things, and invariably, yes, that involves sidewalks. That involves actually connecting your communities fully with sidewalks so you don't have these little 50 meter sidewalks or you go 50 yards over here and then you're gonna the sidewalk just abruptly ends right into a light post or a tree to actually change that and connect this and add bike lanes all that kind of stuff it can happen anywhere it doesn't have to be that you can only get that in new york city and that's the biggest point about this is that suburbs can transform and become walkable jerry do you 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 have a weekend home does it have sidewalks where where you are uh, no, just in the downtown area, the sort of uh, you right. know the business district has sidewalks. Um, I don't have but, sidewalks either. Oh, I have it in yeah. uh, East Hampton, Georgia Estates. We have all around us the bike, and you know I'm thinking of uh, we don't want to have sidewalks where we are. No, well bike lane. I'm thinking that city citizens bank over here should have a whole bunch of bike lanes, Glenda. Can I suggest that to you? I know you're the number 12 largest bank in the universe. Um, I think we should have Citizens Lane helping us all have our bike. What do you think? Uh, Get around. That sounds like a plan, Esther. There you go. Yes, you bring that up at the next board meeting, uh, Glenda, and I'll find a job for you. And yeah. yes, oh, <laughs> because nice. yes, what can I it tell makes you? Total sense. Can I, can, Michael? Do you want to hear something, Michael Rodriguez? Um, I uh, I was just away on business, and I stayed at a Marriott, 
and it was on a highway in an industrial park, and I was never more miserable. There was absolutely nowhere to go, nowhere to walk, nothing to see. You were right in front of the highway, and you had to get a taxi or an Uber to go absolutely anywhere. And uh, so I understand that. And then, But also, Michael, I live in a year-round community that uh, – does not have sidewalks, and we voted against sidewalks. Uh, everybody voted Why? against sidewalks. Why did you vote against them? Uh, it takes away the rural character. Uh, there's really nowhere. To, it's all residential, so there's nowhere to walk to anyway. And it just it, it, uh, it ruins the rural character. The, uh, the, the local area owns the first 10 feet anyway between your property and the street, uh, but it's just kept uh, as, as forest. And, and because we don't have sidewalks, we don't get mail delivery. That's another thing, Michael, um, that uh, yeah. at least happens out here. They will not deliver mail unless you have a sidewalk and a um, post office box at the – a poster box on the street. Yeah, but yeah. – and a lot of the point is really we're not saying that the entire metro area has to be this urban walkable type of form. There is a place in America for uh, classic rural communities and small towns. And when you're talking about walkability, though, um, maybe adding sidewalks or actually being able to connect one place or another, that's a policy choice, and some places can make that or not. But there are actually a lot of places throughout the metro region that are poised to increase their level of walkable urbanism, to develop around transit stations. We're not trying to threaten every single community out, uh, out in rural areas in rural New Jersey and in parts of Long Island and up in the Hudson Valley and say that you need to really convert everything here into something that looks, that looks like Brooklyn. We're saying that in your traditional downtown business districts, Around, start there and start around it and build around your transit stations and concentrate some of your development around those areas. Because, frankly, some of these places out there, just like we're saying the office parks are dying, so are some of the uh, larger homes out in, uh, out in rural areas. They're, the price per square foot um, on places that aren't walkable are fundamentally different now than places that are walkable. Here in D.C., for example, are, uh, we have Great Falls, Virginia. Uh, it's kind of like a Greenwich, Connecticut type of idea for a parallel for you. And in the Washington Post, there's a story of a, a woman trying to sell a house for $10 million she had it listed for, for her mansion, and couldn't sell it, lowered the price to $3 million. And eventually, let's just say there was a fire on the house, <laughs> and she was trying to, to – uh, there, there was a lawsuit between her and the, and the insurance company about this because she wasn't able to sell the house for the $3 million she wanted for. Ended up, at the end of the day, settling for the land, selling it for $700,000. Oh, my God. Uh, because we're just seeing some of the prices in the traditional large home, over three, 4,000 square foot in, uh, in traditionally suburban areas, the price per square foot is actually just completely different than the types of prices we see in walkable urban. The market really has fundamentally shifted. And some of you folks on here who know more about just how much time on the market some of these houses are staying and the difference between a house out in uh, a country home or something in a walkable urban downtown, it, you, I, I'm going to guess that you're seeing what I'm seeing, which is a night and day difference in terms of how long these uh, properties are on the market. Well, 
I think I think that's really true. I do. And, you know, uh, walkability is so important to me, especially, I think, to people who are the baby boomers, the baby boomers. you know, definitely want to exactly. be somewhere. And that's why I'm exactly. thinking about moving back to New York City. Oh, I've got an apartment for you, a great pedicure. <laughs> oh, my God. But this is true. It is true in all this in all the urban areas of the world that the the dysfunctionality is because all the baby boomers want to move back all the millennials want to stay, and there's no infrastructure that meets the needs. And transportation is such a big factor. So being able to walk all over, I don't have, I mean, I don't have a car in the city. I'll get into the subway. I'll use a taxi. But walking to everything is great. Michael Rodriguez, thank you so much for calling in. You were fascinating. It was great to have you here. Okay. Thank you, everyone, and thanks for... Thank you. Thank We're you, at 866-970-9622. Give us a ring. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Have you ever had a legal question pertaining to elder law or estate law and wondered to yourself, what's the best course of action to take? Every Thursday during Kevin McCullough Radio at 5 o'clock on AM 970, The Answer, you'll hear Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law answer a listener's actual question. If you have a legal question for Mike Connors, the Ask the Lawyer host, simply email the question to askmikeconnors at gmail.com or call the Legal Question of the Week phone line at 347-735-MIKE. That's 347-735-6453. And don't forget to tune in to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors every Saturday evening at 6 on AM 970, The Answer. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Veggies. It's a wonderful product. I, I mean, it's an absolute wonderful product. I'm so grateful that I uh, heard about it. Yeah. And at first I didn't take you know, I didn't take it uh, faithfully, I'd forget. And then I'd say about a month and a half, two months ago, I really started taking it right. And um, what a difference. What a difference. What are you waiting for? Good health is just a phone call away. Don't miss your opportunity to get a free month supply of Balance of Nature. Call 1-800-2468-751. That's 1-800-2468-751. Call 1-800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com. Use promo code THEANSWER. It was my fifth birthday, and my dad was bringing home the cake. Should have been here a half hour ago. The cake never made it, and neither did my dad. That was the day a drunk driver killed my dad. Impaired drivers take lives. Think. Sponsored by the New York State Governor's Traffic Safety Committee. Aired in cooperation with the New York State Broadcasters Association. Two little tablets is all it takes to make your thin hair feel and look thicker and fuller. Guaranteed. Viviscal is the number one drug-free hair growth supplement in the U.S., with one box being sold every minute globally. It's clinically researched to promote existing hair growth for men and women. And now a 90-day supply of Viviscal is offered in your area risk-free plus free shipping. Call 800-330-6865. Viviscal nourishes thinning hair from 
from within. You'll love your hair growth results guaranteed. Viviscal is so effective, it's recommended by top doctors. Here's Dr. John Laura. As a dermatologist, I feel confident recommending Viviscal. It's backed by 25 years of research and multiple clinical studies that demonstrate Viviscal's effectiveness in promoting the growth of thicker, fuller hair. Want to try Viviscal? Every listener that calls now gets a 90-day risk-free supply plus free shipping. Call now, 800-330-6865. 800-330-6865. That's 800-330-6865. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. Hey, it's Stephen Gaines sitting in for Dottie Herman, but uh, Dottie's co-host, Jerry Feeney, New York attorney Jerry Feeney, is with us. So is our uh, mortgage and uh, finance expert, uh, Glenda Winter Irving. And uh, and Esther Muller is here with us also, uh, real estate educator and investor and all the rest. Okay, the GOP tax plan. We haven't discussed this on the year on the air because it's so iffy and it's a little disturbing too. Um, the the Republican tax plan overhaul and this hasn't been voted in and we don't know if this is going to work. But they are going to diminish the value of a break that lawmakers once considered untouchable, the mortgage interest deduction. Now, they're not suggesting this new tax plan does not suggest that they take away the mortgage interest deduction, but it isn't likely to be eliminated. The plan almost doubles the standard deduction for individuals and couples, so you would not need to deduct your your um, your mortgage interest deduction. You would not need to deduct that because if you got double, if you would double the standard deduction for individuals and couples, it would be more generally than you could deduct. So you could do one or the other. You can take a mortgage interest deduction. The break allows homeowners to deduct from federal taxes money spent on interest tied to mortgage loans of as much as $1 million. So uh, let me try to explain this a little further. Um, perhaps uh, Glenda or Jerry can uh, jump in. And uh, The tax plan would double the standard deduction for individuals and couples, meaning only the highest earners would continue to itemize their deductions. Currently, about 30% of U.S. homes, only 30% of U.S. homes, are valuable enough to make it worthwhile to take the mortgage interest deduction along with it. So do we understand what I'm trying to say here? Glenda, Jerry? Yeah, it's not that, it's not that they're going to be losing anything. It's just that there won't be as much incentive for the lower earners to have an interest deduction, standard deduction, would be greater than they would otherwise get by itemizing. So it's a slightly different concept than that deduction. Uh, rather, they're proposing to double the standard exemption. Of course, none of this hasn't passed yet. It's all uh, a proposal, but, um, you know, the standard deduction hasn't been raised in probably 30 years now, so probably is about time that it was. The fear, I'm, I'm reading this uh, from the journal, the fear is that the weakening of the deduction could lessen the incentive for renters to buy homes and would likely encourage people to spend less on a home purchase, which would really cause a problem. The Tax Reform Act of 1986 kept the deduction intact, even as it eliminated a broader deduction for interest on consumer debt. That that we all know about. So uh, a May study uh, from the National Association of Realtors said home prices nationally could drop 10% in the short term if the standard deduction were doubled. 
Um, what do you think about that, Glenda? That's really right up your alley. Glenda? Is Glenda Winter Irving still there? Uh, I- sorry, I had you on mute. Um, Stephen, the interest deduction, yes, is, is, is staying, but may not be um, used as much because, as you said, the standard deduction is increasing. But what is what they are proposing to remove is being able to deduct your real estate taxes. So at the moment, for instance, I deduct for my interest on my mortgage and I deduct my real estate taxes. My real estate taxes, I live in South Orange, New Jersey now, are 26000 a year. So um, that's, a, that's a significant change for me and for those who will deduct real estate taxes. It will mean for many that if you don't have your interest and real estate taxes, that you do fall now within the standard deduction and you are less likely to itemize. I do think if it holds, you know, if the real estate lobby is a very strong lobby, so I'm not sure whether the real estate um, tax, you know, sort of termination will as a deductibility will stick. But if it does, it will make a difference to the carrying cost on a property, and um, it, it will, will certainly make a difference. Yeah, it's it's really well, the fact that – go ahead, Jerry. And it will make you know, a the difference. Other thing is, let's not forget that Trump is a real estate guy too. So. Yeah, as a broker and educator, I can tell you that uh, many, many of the people that do buy, if they're first-time buyers or they've been purchasing – Part of the incentive has been the knowing that the majority of the deduction will be deductible because of the real estate taxes and the mortgage deduction. So I think that certainly if that came to pass, it would have a lot of reasons for a lot of people to say, you know what, the American dream. That was part of the American dream, my tax deductions, mm-hmm. you know, the price is going up. Well, the American dream is kind of like not there anymore. I'm not buying. I'm renting. Ronald so, Reagan declared to so. a gathering of 4,000 realtors that his goal was to preserve that part of the American dream, which the home mortgage interest deduction symbolizes. There you, you go. You get a house, you, you can deduct. And it was really it incentivized people to do other pricey markets that could see relatively few people using the mortgage break in Philadelphia. Nearly 30% of homeowners are incentivized to the mortgage interest deduction. That would drop yeah. to 1.9%. Wow. Yeah. However, having said that, you know, there is a general tax deduction, you know, that may compensate for some of that. But on balance, any of the charts and any of the articles that I have read, the high tax states like New York and New Jersey and so forth, they will be more affected by this than the lower tax states. Um, The high tax states tend to be blue states and the lower tax Many of the lower tax states are red states, so there's a shift in, um, mm-hmm. you know, the benefit, the net if benefit. Any of, if any of you have questions, we're at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. But, uh, Glenda, I want to ask you something. 
are uh, this, this is a misconception about mortgages. Are all lenders required to charge the same fees for appraisals and credit reports? Because you know, I've recently uh, applied for a mortgage about eighty times, and uh, <laughs> well, it seems like eighty times, and the fees are always different. One, but one one company made me give them thousand dollars up front as legal thing, and something else. Another is charging nine hundred dollars for an appraisal. One's charging twelve hundred for an appraisal. How does that happen, Glenda? By the way, okay. Glenda, now you know Stephen went to somewhere else other than Citizen Oh, no, Bank. I actually referred him on to someone because oh. he has a unique situation. Um, okay, I just wanted to make sure I, I'm loyal to you. I went to, to Citizens, and Citizens I'm actually wants to give you the... Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Glenda. I just want to say that Citizens really does like to loan money, as opposed to most of the other places that I went to. Citizens really tried yeah. to, to do yes, that. And, of course, yes. when it didn't work out, Glenda even gave me a referral somewhere else. There you go. But explain yeah. these, these, these fees that are okay, charged. Okay, so first... You mentioned two types of fees, appraisals and credit reports. All institutions outsource obtaining those. So many institutions will outsource to the same vendor. So, for instance, Wells Fargo goes to the same vendor for credit reports as we do. A credit report is $11.45 per person. Wells Fargo and us, we will have the same price. If if, um, Citibank or Chase goes to a different vendor, it may be $15. So that may change. Appraisals, however, they are higher priced. Appraisal charges are a function of the purchase price. Again, most banks will outsource appraisals to what's called an appraisal management company. The appraisal management company will have a schedule and it will have um, states, purchase prices, and then, you know, the appraisal cost for each of those. It comes off a grid. They should be pretty much the same, Stephen. I mean, $100 here and there, maybe, but they should be pretty much the same if you're looking at the same value, the same type of appraisal, you know, the same location. Um, They shouldn't be too dissimilar, quite frankly. Then you mentioned people giving $1,000 up front or whatever it might be. That's a marketing thing. You know, in any transaction, there's an amount of profitability in that transaction. And, And as a marketing thing, a lender might choose to say, you know, we'll give you a five hundred thousand, a five hundred, you know, closing cost discount, or we'll do this or other. That's an individual marketing incentive um, that one lender or another may be doing. And so, yes, there may be differences in that respect. Well, by the way, I just paid forty-five dollars to get my uh, to a bank. I just paid for, to a lender, I should say. I paid forty-five dollars to get my uh, credit report. So it's. All different prices, I guess, but uh, forty-five and twenty-five is five dollars expensive. You know, we can talk about it off. Off air. There might, might have been some reason for that, but that's expensive, quite frankly. I, I have another. It's okay. I don't. I have an. I, the report came back good, so we're at eight six six nine seven zero nine six two two. Do I must I get my mortgage through the same lender I was pre-approved by? If you get pre-approval, no. no? No, you don't. However, if a seller is making a decision on accepting your offer based upon, you know, a pre-approval given by a certain lender or individual that they're relying upon, you know, um, there might be some some comfort level around that. But no, you can get a pre-approval from me 
something may change and you may ultimately finance through another lender. That's not, that's not unusual. How about this, Glenda? You'll, you'll always get the best mortgage interest rate at a bank where you have a savings or a checking account or you've already done business with. Is that so? Is that a leg up? Yes. Most banks will, if you establish, have an account or establish an account, there's, there's often, you know, a, a little difference. For instance, at Citizens Bank, if you establish a checking account, we reduce the rate by an eighth of a percent. You know, the view is that, you know, it's giving Citizens Bank the opportunity to develop a relationship with you and there's value in that to the bank. So yes, a lot of banks do actually give you a discount uh, discounted rate for a relationship basis. We're at 866. But that's for a a new relationship. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be so sure that on an existing relationship, Stephen, you're going to get a better rate. You know, if you go into the bank that has your credit card, for example, I don't think you're going to get any We're going to be cut off here. Let's continue talking about this on our way back. Don't go away. Blue Star Medicated Ointment gets five-star reviews from our loyal users for fast relief of the pain and itch of almost any skin irritation. Blue Star soothes insect bites and fungal infections. It really works on the summer rashes I get every year. I had psoriasis on my elbows. Blue Star worked wonders. Amazing stuff. Mirabit on and the itch is gone. Look for the white box with the Blue Star in the first aid section. Feel Blue Star work fast or your money back. Imagine Dragons live in concert. The Evolve World Tour with very special guests, Group Love and Kay Flay. Barclays Center, October 23rd. Get tickets now at LiveNation.com. The brand new album Evolve is available now. There's more at ImagineDragonsMusic.com. Do what it takes. Hate going to the mall? Try Latote.com, a fashion subscription box that sends brand name clothing and accessories right to your door for one low monthly fee. Choose from brands like BCBG, Nike, Rebecca Minkoff, and more. All month long, get unlimited totes each month. Simply wear, return, and repeat. Go to Latote.com, enter code radio at checkout to get 50% off your first month. Wear what you want. Return everything in the mail when you're done. Repeat all month long. Again, that's Latote.com, enter code radio. I'm Nick Soboleski, a select quote agent with a true story that could save you hundreds of dollars a year. A woman named Linda just called. Her husband, Ray, has a $300,000 group life insurance policy, but is changing jobs and can't take it with him. Well, I shopped the many highly rated term life insurance companies we represent and found Ray, who is 41 and takes medication to control his cholesterol, a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $27 a month. That's almost twice the coverage for less than half of what he had paid. If SelectQuote hasn't shopped for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For your free quote, call 800-452-1330. That's 800-452-1330. 800-452-1330. Or go to SelectQuote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at slugquote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states.
Mike Gallagher here again for one of my all-time, and I mean all-time, favorite sponsors, ReliefFactor.com. My story is simple. I had a hip replaced, then I had a motorcycle accident, left me in pain, who simply wouldn't go away until I started taking Relief Factor. A three-week quick start is just $19.95. of people who do order the three-week quick start go on to order more, like me. Go to ReliefFactor.com, ReliefFactor.com, or give them a call, 800-500-8384, 800-500-8384, ReliefFactor.com. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. Hey, it's Stephen Gaines sitting in for Dottie Herman. We're going to talk about uh, real estate as a career in just one moment with Esther Muller, but I just wanted to uh, ask uh, Glenda Winter Irving, how often can you refinance your home? In other words, can you do it every six months? Can you do it every year? Does the lender look at that and say, oh, this person's a serial refinancer? Um, technically, you can, you can do it every time there is uh, value to you in doing so. Um, there has to be a value in terms of, you know, the maturity, maybe lessening the maturity of the loan, decreasing the cost of the loan, fixing a rate rather than floating a rate. They may be all valid reasons why you can refinance. And if there is a valid reason, then, you know, yes, you can proceed to refinance. Um, yes, there are serial refinances. Um, I, I, you know, quite frankly, I don't think there is a law that prevents it, but I don't encourage people to refinance unless there is definitely a benefit because each time you do, you've got to take into account the closing costs and whether or not it is a real benefit. Um, I have seen people refinance, you know, in uh, decreasing rate markets two or three times a year. And the bank doesn't look... Uh, the bank doesn't frown upon that. It doesn't hurt your chance. No, I don't think the bank has the right to frown upon it as long as there's demonstrated <laughs> value added to the borrower. Glenda, let me ask you something. The bank isn't supposed to frown upon age or something. But doesn't when the underwriter looks at your application, don't they see your age, whether you're 75 or 80? Don't they look at that and isn't that some psychological way that they, they can decide whether or not you're going to get a loan? No. You're not allowed to. It's prohibited. It's prohibited. Interesting. Yes. Absolutely fascinating. So everybody watches the, all these TV shows uh, where there are brokers, billion-dollar brokers, million-dollar brokers. They're all over the place. And one would imagine that if you're sassy and have a big personality, uh, that you could just become a million-dollar broker. Uh, so you, you, um, you asked to Mueller is the chief educator of most brokers in New York City. How many would you say? 25,000, 50,000? How many brokers do you we think we have? Trained? Oh, gee, I, I, I think we have about 150 to 60,000 real estate agents in New York. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So not uh, every much other, no, you know, your mother, your father, your <laughs> aunts, your cousins, my great grandfather. Actually, too. anyone that has a real estate driver's, oh no, a driver's license is like a real estate license. Come on, Stephen, who do you, do you know that does not have a real estate license? Uh, Name one. Uh, Glenda Wajerby. <laughs> Doesn't me. Wait a second, exactly. Glenda. Glenda, you don't. <laughs> Lucky you. No, I don't. Yes. So, first of all. 
all these sexy shows that you're watching. Jerry, are you still there? I'm right here. I'm listening. Now, Jerry, legitimately, don't attorneys automatically have a real estate broker's license? Well, the theory being... I know. You don't want to admit to it, but tell us. If you can pass the bar exam, then no offense, but you obviously then can pass the brokerage exam. So we are, we are exempt, technically we're exempt from the law that prohibits you from engaging in the uh, profession of real estate brokerage without a license. Attorneys are exempt because uh, the theory is that their uh, admission to the bar means they're more than qualified uh, because of a much, you know, more comprehensive test. Um, Having said that, you know, I don't really know the first thing about brokerage because I don't do it. So when people ask me things like, do you think this apartment's a good value? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I sit in a black box in my office all day and do contracts and things like that. Valuation is not my thing. So um, that, I think, is something that a broker really adds a lot of value to. You know, the old joke is, do you drop a flower pot out the window and you hit three brokers and two uh, attorneys in New York. So um, there's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you want to get a deals done, you certainly don't give it to a broker I mean, The brokers then go or up the to the apartment where the flower pots <laughs> fell and try to sell it. That's exactly. all. They exactly. try to get the listing. Yeah, but to be really serious about it is um, what you see on TV and all this sexiness about it... Uh, the reality of it is that it's a very, very difficult profession. It's not as it looks. It only took two weeks to get a license if you want to. And it's only, uh, it's under a thousand dollars to become, uh, and come into a new profession where you're spending, uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and even your own money. And at the end of the day, uh, you don't make any money. So, to be a real estate skilled agent today takes an awful lot of uh, work ethics, such as working probably 724. There's very little time you have off. And let me just distinguish because in residential, there's an emotional component to it. So when people buy, they don't care if it's 12 o'clock at night. They'll call you as a broker and want to know at that moment, should I really buy it? Should I not buy it? Am I making a mistake? And they get emotionally panicky. So to come into this profession, you need to be very empathetic. You need to be very tolerant. You need to be very, very patient. And you need to be realistic that you're not going to be making much money as those TV, you know, my friends on TV make and they, they, they snap the fingers and you see thousands of dollars in front of you. It's much more complicated. And I would probably say if you're thinking about a career at any age, you really think about it many times because it's not easy. Well, you'd want an experienced broker. When I first got my real estate license about four or five years ago, I thought I was going to go over to my friends that had, you know, big mansions uh-huh. and everything and say, gee, if you sell your house, let me represent it. And they'd say, why would I do that? You haven't sold any houses. Right. I want somebody who sold 500, 1,000 houses. Totally. So it's a matter of traction. Yes. And it's also, if you're going to come into it as a new career, you really need to partner up with experienced, ethical agents that you can learn from and it's it's not a six-month learning curve it really is years of practicing the profession 
and we are being realistic that it it takes all hours. If you're going to come into commercial, uh, it might you might not have to spend the weekends working. But if you're going to come into residential, the weekend is a must. And yes, and when you get your license, you're going to f- probably find that you get into a lot of family arguments because you thought you were going to get the listing. And your cousin says, well, wait a second, Stephen, you know, I love you and you're my cousin, but what do you know about selling apartments? So, again, going back to your question. If you question, have brain surgery, would you have the surgeon who just graduated medical school or a guy who's been doing it for 30 years operate on you? Exactly. And exactly. your home is your biggest asset. Exactly. So it's a serious career and also being able to be a relationship person. Look, understand who you are as a personality. Some people just can't fit into the tolerance level that you need to have. Into There's a lot of abuse also because there's disrespect to our industry. Jerry, for example, when you asked him, do you have your broker's license? If you listen to the way he answered, he wanted to make sure you know that he first went to law school, passed the bar, and that gave him the license because we know that you could have not gone to college one day or any schooling, but you can pass the real estate exam, and now you are in this multi-million-dollar profession. So we're not exactly proud of who we are as agents, and most people don't understand and respect the skills that it really takes to close the deal. So a great agent. You think that the requirements should be increase the credentialing requirements for your industry? Yes, I do. A hundred percent, Jerry. I think it is ridiculous that you come in after two weeks of of uh, reading a book that hardly applies to the industry, and then you're being given a license to hold people's most important asset and most important investment in their hands. So I'm, you know, I'm not a great promoter, even though I have a school of getting people to come in. I think qualifications are important. What I'm happy to report is that many people who got their MBAs, who got their masters, who got their degrees, realize, wow, you know what? I can apply everything I learned about business and marketing and branding to the real estate industry. And they usually come in and do a lot better than people who just, you know, were thrown out of the house from mommy and daddy who said, go get a job, and they didn't get a job, but they decided, you know what, let me go become a real estate agent. So be aware as to who is representing experience, you. Experience, experience, and, and knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Education, experience, and knowledge is, is I think, a, a, a really important aspect. And then practicing the profession. So with all the background of schooling, to be able to work with agents that are active, that are working, that are ethical, that, that have great skills, there's nothing better and just practicing. You know what's interesting? I when I first got my license, I went into that uh, twenty-two million dollar house, and um, and I, the first thing I told the owners were that uh, was that they had to have the carpets cleaned. Oh. And I, it was actually a smart thing to say, but they said this guy's an amateur. Common sense, by the way, Steve, is probably the number one skill in this industry. And patience—it's a big, a big, big emotional job. Yeah. Um, uh, Dottie Herman, we'll, we'll be back next week. So will uh, Jerry Feeney and uh, Glenda, will you be here next week or will Ace be back? 
no, I think Ace will be here next week with well, you. Ace, Ace is our finance and mortgage and millennial expert now. Thank you for listening to <laughs> Ion Real Estate. Uh, please go to our um, our social media, Dottie Herman on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Speak to you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.